One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before this week's podcast, I've got some exciting news to share with everyone. I've started a Patreon site. Now on there are brand new video podcasts so you can see me. And lots more besides. It's a general hub, I hope, for fans of history, fans of archaeology, travel enthusiasts. I suppose, above all else, it's for all-round admirers of an open-minded approach to life, to love and everything in between. It's about seeing how the lessons of history, the glimpses we catch of the past, can help us to find comfort and navigate our way through the confusion of the modern world. To join and get access, all you have to do is sign up. You can find Neil Oliver on the Patreon website. Follow the links on this podcast or on the Neil Oliver Love Letter Instagram. You'll help to support this podcast as well as getting exclusive access to the new video podcasts. I must say and stress that the Love Letter to the British Isles is and always will be free. In the meantime... Here's this week's love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. For as long as a hundred Scotsmen are left alive, we will never be subject to the dominion of England. It is not for glory, nor for riches, nor for honours that we fight, but for freedom. This alone, which no good man surrenders, but with his life. In this podcast, we're under the watchful eye of a burning red beacon. High in the tower of one of the richest abbeys in the land, the building where an independent Scotland took shape and its future rulers were put on notice. Robert the Bruce, King Robert I and those who followed him would, now and forever, be held to account. A revolutionary document that was nothing less than a declaration of democracy. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Morning, Neil. In the last podcast, you took us to a magical glen in Cornwall, full of hopes, dreams and the future. Where are we now? We're in a much more hard-edged world of written declarations and power politics this week. But having said that, it's still about hopes and dreams and building the future. We're in the county of Angus at Arbroath Abbey, where the groundbreaking Declaration of Arbroath was written. 
if people have listened to us talk before, particularly in the context of, say, Durham Cathedral, you'll know that I'm always attracted by church architecture, church buildings, even in the case of Arbroath Abbey, where it's a ruin. But it's an upstanding ruin. I mean, sometimes when you go to the monasteries and the abbeys and the places that were taken apart under the orders of you know, the Reformation, the rest of it, sometimes they've been reduced to their foundations. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of Arbroath Abbey there. It's a particularly lovely ruin, I would say. It's a particularly lovely building, not least because it's built of really quite brightly pink sandstone. And up there in that part of Scotland, you know, quite often you get a particularly revealing light in the sky, a very clear light, very clear skies, very revealing. Uh, and there's something about seeing the, the colour of the stone against a blue sky, picked out against the blue, that just makes it very easy on the eye. It's a lovely structure. Our broth, I'm sure, for a lot of people, especially people who don't live in Scotland or maybe haven't had the opportunity to visit Scotland, if they think of our broth at all, it's, it's probably in connection with our broth smokies. <laughs> which is the, the delicacy, the smoked fish that's made there by the thousand every day. It's worth saying as well that people from, say, say people in Kent traditionally are called Longtails as a nickname. And it dates back to the time when the French were putting it about and telling anyone that would listen that the English were little better than monkeys and that Englishmen had tails. And for whatever reason, it has sort of stuck in Kent, you know, that, that place nearest to, to France. So they're called and call themselves, mockingly, I suppose, long tails. I grew up in Dumfries in the southwest of Scotland, and people there traditionally call each other Dunhamers, which means down homers. Uh, and there's various explanations for it. When I was at school, we were told that a lot of the working men for a time worked in quarries around the town and would come down home at the end of the day. So they were going down home, Dunhame, Dunhamers. People all over the country will know other nicknames like that that people take on themselves. Well, in, in our broth, they call themselves the Reed Lichties, which is a Scottish way or a Scottish accented way of saying the red lights. Reed Licht. Reed for red, Licht for light. So they call themselves the Reed Lichties. And it comes from the Abbey. And there's a fantastic story that makes Arbroath Abbey one of the earliest lighthouses in Scotland, in Britain. About 12 miles or so off the coast, Arbroath's on the coast, it's a, it's a coastal town, and about 12 miles out to sea, there's a submerged reef of rock, only just submerged, very, very dangerous to shipping. Always was, still is. And it's called Inch Cape. It's the Inch Cape Reef. And for a long time, there was a bell on it. People had taken the step of anchoring a bell, which would at least give sailors, mariners, an outside chance of being aware of the presence of the Inch Cape Rock. You know, if you could hear the bell, it, it was a warning to pay attention, watch what you were doing. But before the bell... The people in the, the community in the abbey used to light a fire in a brazier in a big round window high on one wall of the abbey. And the light from this beacon could be seen 
for miles out to sea. Again, it was there to warn sailors about the presence of this reef of rock, the Inch Cape. So hence the reed licht, the red light. It's a memory of a time when Arbroath Abbey basically functioned like a lighthouse to try and keep mariners and seagoing types out of danger. So they're the reed lichties. And it brings with it a sense as well of the, of the Abbey watching over people. And not just watching over people at sea, but watching over people on the land as well. The window that the brazier used to sit in is obviously the, the glass is gone now. It's just a big empty circle. And it's known to this day as the Round O. There's always been a sense in the town of the Round O and the Abbey itself keeping watch. There's an anonymous poem from the 19th century that, that part of it has, It was there where my father and mother both taught me to deal honest and fair, to be kindly and free, and never to forget there's one eye above us that watches our actions wherever we may be. So this idea that the Abbey had its eye on everyone, So there's a sense in which the place was regarded as keeping watch, keeping people safe, but also watching what you were doing. Just the idea of a sort of a sentinel. And it was a beacon. So it was a light in the darkness, you know, along the lines of, you know, the section in John, chapter 1, verse 5, I think it is. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So it's appropriate in the religious context of an abbey to think about a light in the darkness something to steer by, something to keep you from harm. So the Abbey's got this grand tradition. Who commissioned the Abbey and when was it built? It was built really under the instruction or, or with the permission of King William the Lion. He gave the land, he granted, obviously the King, the King of Scots owned, owned everything in a sense, and so granted the land, the necessary land to a community of Benedictine monks in 1178. And it took about 60 years before it was complete. You know, we talked about that in the, in the context of Durham Cathedral as well. You know, these things took a lifetime to build, at least. You, you know, so you'd have a young, a young mason would turn up as an apprentice and would retire, probably, with the thing still incomplete or would possibly just live and work long enough to see the thing completed. And when, when William the Lion died in 1214, he was buried in front of the high altar. William the Lion had granted them enough lands that they could have the income from, you know, so farmland, so that they would have income which would fund the religious community. And William the Lion also granted the community in Arbroath Abbey with an item, an artefact called the Monny Musk Reliquary. Now, it, it's one of the Holy of Holies of, of Scottish history. It sits now in the, in the collections of the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. It looks like a gingerbread house you know a sort of simple four-sided thing with a with a sloped roof it's that kind of shape and you know frankly that sort of size and traditionally it had within it some of the remains of saint columba our friend from a previous love letter yes our friend columba from iona now columba died in 597 and was buried on iona but then in 849 a.d because the place, like so many others around the coastline, was being bothered by Vikings, the community upped sticks and they took Columba's remains with them 
because they didn't want them to fall into the hands or be defiled by the Vikings. And then eventually, his, his remains, it sounds, it sounds a, bit, a bit gruesome really, but, but those remains were, were divided between religious communities in Ireland and Scotland. But some of them ended up in the Monimusk reliquary. And this thing was imbued with power. You know how like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there was the idea that the lost art, well, as is described in the Bible, of course, in the Old Testament, it could lay waste to, to cities and armies. If you've seen Roads of the Lost Art, you know what the lost art was capable of. Well, th- there was an idea that the Money Musk reliquary was a bit like that, although without the bolts of lightning. But the, the Scottish army would take it into battle, and it, it's supposed to have been at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. And obviously the Scottish army under Robert the Bruce was victorious and, and the idea is that some of the credit was put down to the presence of the, the Monimusk reliquary and Columba had a, a reputation for being pretty pretty bellicose himself he'd almost certainly been driven out of Ireland for being too heavy handed when he was going about the business of converting people to Christianity they drove him out so he was a, he was a hard man you know forget any notion of a sort of a soft meek priest he was a hard man and so you might want his spirit his angry presence his angry forceful presence on the battlefield but but in any event that's the monimus reliquary and so for a long time that was in the possession of the religious community in Arbroath Abbey so it was a rich and prosperous place yes Yes, I mean, the, the abbeys were. The abbeys, the abbeys tended to be. If they didn't start out rich, they became rich. And an honour like the, having the Monimusk reliquary there wouldn't have hurt. So there, I think we've said as well, it, it took, probably took about a lifetime to build. So it started in 11, 1178. Probably took about 60 years, about a lifetime to build. Difficult to be sure. But it was built on such a scale that once it was completed, unlike m- many other abbeys and monasteries, it was never really significantly added to. Nobody ever felt the need to make it any bigger or to add any extensions onto it. The Arbroath Abbey that was built then, that was it. The job was pretty much finished. In its day, it would have been plastered inside. You know, the walls would have been pale white plaster. And it's thought, it's believed, demonstrable archaeologically, that on the outside there was a, a kind of a render of some sort. A bit like rough casting, if you like. So the fact that it appears to us today as a scrubbed clean red sandstone building, it almost certainly didn't look like that when it was a completed building and functioning. It was, you know, it was it was covered over. But when you go now, it has a feeling about it of being partly forgotten, that its day has passed. In the same way we've talked before about the Temple of Orkney at the Ness of Brodgar, gone now, lost, or Iona once of, of the greatest importance and now still valued uh, amongst the uh, cognoscenti but overlooked by most and our Broth Abbey has that feeling about it as well, it sits at one end of the high street uh, but it's on the other side of a you, there's still a, a red sandstone gatehouse that you you pass through to, to go into the, the abbey proper uh, but you could be forgiven for not noticing it and it has that left behind feel or of a place that's I don't know, maybe waiting for something. Maybe waiting for its time to come again. But the reason that Arbroath Abbey is one of the places that I can't forget 
is because of the document that bears its name. Now, we, we spoke very recently about Magna Carta, the great charter that King John signed to sort of mollify his barns, although he subsequently went crying to the Pope and had it, had it kind of made null and void, and then it, was, then it resurfaced later on. But a, a document of fundamental importance to, to Western democracy. Well, the Declaration of Arbroath, as it is known, is, to my mind, of equal significance to Magna Carta. And like Magna Carta, the idea, the spirit of the Declaration of Arbroath is there in the American Declaration of Independence. Some of the sense of it has translated into the American Declaration of Independence. Now, it was written in 1320, the Declaration of Arbroath, and the context for its creation was, at that time, Robert Bruce, King Robert the Bruce, had been King of Scots for 14 years. He made himself King, basically, in 1306. He murdered a rival, John Cummin, the Lord of Badnoch, in a church in Dumfries, Grey Friars, murdered him in front of the high altar. This was a guy who could have been a claimant on the throne. So Robert Bruce did away with him, and then he had to follow through. It was an impetuous move. Possibly, probably, didn't mean to do it when he did it, but in any event, once he had committed this murder in a holy of holies, it was a sacrilegious act, but he maintained his momentum and had himself crowned king. But... 14 years later, in 1320, he was still not being recognised as the King of Scotland by King Edward II of England or by the Pope in Rome. Neither of them would acknowledge him as the King of Scots, the King of an independent country. And furthermore, and really as close to his heart as anything else, because of the murder of Cummin, John Cummin, Robert had been excommunicated so for 14 years he had been outside the loving arms of the church. And it's hard for us in, in the 21st century, secular people, it's hard to consider what it felt like to be an excommunicated person in the 14th century when belief in God and heaven and hell was absolute and unshakable. The idea of being excommunicated, which, which meant that you were damned, damned to perdition, damned to hell. That idea was unbearable for people. And so the fact that Robert had been living as an excommunicated person for all of that time was always on his mind. And so it was in that context, in 1320, that the great men, or some of the great men of the country of Scotland, got together and decided that they would send a letter to the Pope, Pope John XXII, and they would appeal slash demand that King Robert be recognised as the king of an independent country and furthermore his status as an excommunicated person ought to be looked at again in a favourable way. So the decision was taken by the great men of, of the realm to propose that Abbot Bernard of Arbroath Abbey who was also the Chancellor of Scotland, that he would be the man to compose the letter. And so he did. And so he puts together this 
extraordinary appeal in the name or on behalf of King Robert. And it has within it a history of, of Scotland trying to make the case that Scotland had always been an independent nation in its own right. The Pope had been listening to the position stated by Edward I, Edward I of England, who had declared that his ancestors had been the first people to set foot in the Long Island of Britain, and that therefore the whole place was his, Scotland included. And the Pope had broadly accepted this. But the Declaration of Arbroath made the case that there was a different history, and that Scotland had always been, and therefore still was, an independent country. But it's an audacious document. It's not just a history lesson for the Pope. It makes the most audacious claim it acknowledges that Robert's been a great king, that he has protected Scotland from the violence of England, but it makes the it makes it plain that if he ever lets them down, the people of Scotland will get rid of him. The wording goes, to him we are bound, but if he should desist from what he has begun and should show an inclination to subject us or our kingdom to the king of England, then we declare that we will use our utmost effort to expel him from the throne and we will choose another king to rule over us. Now, that's quite a thing to say in the 14th century about a king. I mean, remember, kings are regarded as, as having their power from God. And so to say, to say quite bluntly, as long as he does a good job, we'll keep him and we'll honour him and we'll fight and die for him. But if he ever lets us down or sells us out, we'll take him off the throne and we'll replace him with someone better. And to say that about Robert the Bruce, the legend who had lost brothers, other family members in the war, who had seen so many people die, whose wife had been taken prisoner, whose daughter had been taken prisoner, he had sacrificed as much as a living human being could for his country. But nonetheless, these noblemen were saying, even so, we will do away with them. And down to the fact that, I mean, the most famous, the most famous part of the Declaration of Arbroath has it that for as long as a hundred Scotsmen are left alive, we will never be subject to the dominion of England. It is not for glory, nor for riches, nor for honours that we fight, but for freedom, this alone, which no good man surrenders but with his life. Wow, powerful words. People around me have that tattooed on their bodies. You know, this is something that, that many Scots hold dear. And as a final flourish, the Declaration also says that if the Pope doesn't do something about the way England is behaving towards Scotland, the way that England keeps on trying to force itself on Scotland, that the bloodshed that will result will now be on the Pope's hands. The Declaration of Arbroath says, we've told you what the situation is. You can't pretend you don't know the truth anymore. And so from this point on, if you stand by while England continues to do to us what it's been doing for the last 14 years, the blood, dear Pope, is on your hands. If your holiness does not sincerely believe these things, 
Be well assured that the Almighty will impute to you the loss of life, the destruction of human souls, and all those various calamities which will follow. So, all in all, it's an extraordinary piece of writing. And it was composed, as far as we can tell, I mean, there's, you know, there's, you know, people have different ideas exactly about how these things come to pass. But Abbot Bernard composed the Declaration of Arbroath there within the red sandstone walls of the Abbey. And like Magna Carta, the spirit, the defiant spirit of it, and the bold statement of the right of the people went out around the world. Once stated in the Declaration of Arbroath, it was never forgotten. As with all these things, the Declaration of Arbroath talks about the people, the Scottish people. It doesn't mean people like me. <laughs> it's talking about the nobility, the aristocracy. I mean, that, that's really who the people are. It's not some egalitarian document that says that, you know, from the lowest of the low, all Scottish people have the right to depose the king. When they say the Scottish people, they're talking about themselves, each other, the nobles, the great and the good of the land. But nonetheless, it's still the first shimmerings of that idea that's there in Magna Carta, that yeah, yeah, he's the king, but there are circumstances under which it's not just our right, but it's our obligation to get rid if he doesn't always demonstrate that he's a good ruler, a good king doing the best for his people. And that idea is something that we should all retain about our leaders, especially in troubled times. You know, we're living through troubled times. And while on the one hand we acknowledge that we have put people in positions of power and we expect them to exercise their duties... We hold the obligation and the right to say, if they're not doing this properly, we're entitled to something better. The power belongs to the people. And we allow a monarch at times, at times in the past, or we allow a government to rule over us. But the power with which they rule is a gift that we give to them. And that if they fail us, or let us down, it's our obligation to take that power and put it in the hands of someone else. Now, the Declaration of Arbroath, off it went, written in 1320, it went away to the Pope, but nothing nothing happened right away, as, with, as is so often the case. And it wasn't until 1328 that a peace treaty was finally signed between Scotland and England. It's called the Treaty of Edinburgh and Northampton. And it brought to an end the war that Robert the Bruce had been prosecuting for all of that time. And he was welcomed back into the arms of the church just in time because Robert the Bruce died in 1329, one year after the Treaty of Edinburgh and Northampton. But by the time he died, his ban of excommunication had been lifted and he died back in the arms of the church, much to his relief. So that as far as he was concerned, as he drew his last breath, he was heaven bound. But it's also important to note that no one paid attention to the Declaration of Abroth for the longest time. 
in, in, in subsequent centuries, people didn't mention it, didn't write about it. It, it resurfaced much, much later. P- people really began properly to pay attention to it again in the 17 and 1800s. So it didn't have an instantaneous effect. But the attention that's paid to it now is such that it is properly regarded as, as a foundational document that has enshrined within it f- fundamental ideas about the rights of us as citizens of a country, our rights to good leadership and our obligation to make sure that if we're not being well led, we should remember that the power rests with us. It's the people who have the power. That idea is there in Magna Carta and it's there in the Declaration of Our Broth of 1320. a document, a declaration like this resonate with you? It's, it's when you it's, I, I'm moved by it because I think about the, the bravery that's involved in thinking that way it's written in a time where a king was, had absolute power if you were the king there was no one above you but God and in that context when people profoundly believed in God and that kings were the anointed servants on earth, you know, that they were wielding divine power. That was very much in people's consciousness. And in that context, to think about a group of people, be they nobles or not, to make that statement, it's a leap of thought. It's the beginning of a, like a paradigm shift. You know, you're saying rather than just crawl on your hands and knees in front of just any king or any queen, regardless of what they do. That idea that no, actually, the power is ours. We put you on the throne, but we retain the right to get rid of you and replace you with someone better if you ever let us down. That is a big thought. Steeped in myth and legend, a landscape full of magic and mystery, Jesus' great uncle, Joseph of Arimathea, brought and buried the Holy Grail here, or so they say. The legendary King Arthur and his queen, Guinevere, were buried here. According to some, a tor shimmering with beauty and legends, and also horrors. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out Neil Oliver Love Letter, the podcast's Instagram account. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios 
and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.